we talk so much on the For the Love of Sports podcast about the power of connections and skill sets. So we're teaming up with Aquia Sports Group International to deliver two high-level mentorship programs. The 12-month sports business program will help you craft innovative partnerships and improve selling strategies. And for our newcomers to the sports world, we have a three-month sports business new grad program where you will gain skills to become an integral part of your team. Best news, both programs include monthly video meetups, digital worksheets, exclusive industry interviews, and real case studies. Let's come back from the shutdown even stronger. So head over to aqueous.co.com. That's www.aqueous.co for more information and to get on the wait list. Hello, and welcome to another episode of For the Love of Sports. My name is Michael Rosila, and my guest today is Ben Fairclough. He is the account manager lead of professional services as ix.co. Ben has a very, very interesting story. He used to be a Division three baseball player. He eventually moved on to the Big East Conference, which then became the AAC Conference. If anyone knows that story, you're going to learn a little bit more about it here. It was very interesting getting to understand where Ben sat in that, what he saw and how he did it. Ben also worked for MSG for a minute. And now what he's doing with ix.co and how they're helping out some of the biggest biggest brands as the NFL Chelsea football club in the entire world. So this was an awesome conversation. Very grateful. I got to have that. And here is Ben Faircloud. Today, I'm for the love of sports. I am Michael Roziel, and I have Ben Fairclow. He's account management lead of professional services at ix.co, adjunct professor at Montclair State University, formerly a big member of the Big East Conference. Ben, how you doing today, man? Uh, I'm good, Michael. I, I don't know if I was a big member of the Big East Conference, but certainly a member. Uh, ben, ben, this is my show. You were a very big <laughs> member of the Big East Conference, especially when all that crazy stuff was going down. So I'm very yeah. excited to talk about what you did there, that kind of weird changeover. You know, now there's a different Big East. You were in the real Big East, real in my my words, not yours. But um, first question I have for everybody, Ben, on the For the Love of Sports podcast is, why do you love sports so much? Uh, you know, that that's a good question. And, and it's interesting because we have to remind ourselves periodically that when we're, when we work in sports that we do love it. Um, because when, when sports changes from a hobby to your profession, uh, it's sometimes easy to think of it as a profession instead of a hobby, but, uh, just like anybody starting, uh, sports has always just been, you know, you relate to the, to the athletes and you, and you, uh, get a, a good feeling about, uh, rooting for for the team that that's closest to you. So it, for me, growing up, I was always a passionate Yankees, Giants, and UConn basketball fan. Uh, and so when my dad introduced me and took me to Yankee Stadium as a seven year old, uh, I was hooked for life. Uh, and you know, the athletes were larger than life. The experience of being there, uh, understanding that the you know as I got older, that the team was working to accomplish a cohesive goal. Um, and at, at once I got to admire the players themselves, I, I wanted to play. And so I've, I've been playing 
uh, I played, you know, multiple sports all the way up through college and was a student athlete at a, at a division three school that we'll get to, uh, as a baseball player as well. So love playing it, love being around it, love being close to it. Uh, and it's, you know, it's, it's an honor to keep working in it over, you know, my, perf- my 15 year professional career. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's gotta be so much fun and like, you know, you could be doing digital marketing somewhere else. Right. And as you said before, like you could, you know, you have to remind yourself that you love sports sometimes, but I'm sure you would much rather be doing digital marketing in sports than in consumer packaged goods. No offense to anybody <laughs> that's out there doing any consumer packaged goods, right? That that's that's right. Uh, yeah, I, I, it's always a source of pride that I get to uh, essentially work with the largest sports organizations in the world um, and tell my friends that I do that, and I you know get to work with Chelsea Football Club or I get to work with um, you know the United States Golf Association or or others. So it's it's fun. And I like how you say you get to, you don't have to, you get to, you're a lucky yeah, guy for that sense. Right. But, so one of the first, and, and you brought up your division three baseball career. I think we're going to touch upon that a little bit towards the end. Um, when we kind of go over what college kids are going through now, I think it's an interesting time to t- kind of juxtapose what you were doing back then to what's, what's kind of happening now, especially as a professor, but you got into, you started working at the Big East conference, but as I was saying before, this was when the Big East conference was the Big East Conference, right? It's not It's not this weird kind of collaboration, basketball-only thing they got going on now. UConn is going back, but I didn't realize you were a huge UConn fan. So what was it like working for the conference that they, I don't know, dominated for a little while at least, for, for you know, however we want to um, say that aspect of it, but now kind of having to rein back your fandom a little bit while, uh, yeah. while like, what's that like? Yeah, it, it, to, to be clear, true sort of college basketball or Big East enthusiasts would call the mid to late 80s uh, sort of the quote unquote true Big East conference when, uh, you know, the Patrick Ewings and the Pearl Washingtons uh, and the uh, Chris Mullins of the world were, were, you know, creating the league as as we all sort of knew it in the in the 90s and the early 2000s. Um, but yeah, so so my you know, coming out of grad school, uh, I, I got a chance to be an intern in the communications department at, at the Big East. And uh, it was, it was as a UConn fan and somebody who essentially fell in love with the team when Tate George hit, uh, hit the shot against Clemson uh, in 1990 and the Sweet 16 to go to get to get them to, to face Duke. Uh, you know, it was a dream come true. And, you know, coming out of grad school as a sport management major, uh, as both an undergrad and a and a, a grad student, uh, landings uh, an internship with the Big East was was unbelievable. Uh, and so, t- t- my fandom in the office was allowed, uh, but when you when you're in official capacity outside of the office, uh, and and at having worked at the Big East for eight years, over time that fandom sort of naturally dwindled and you start rooting for things like making sure that the officials do their job well, <laughs> more, more so than uh, any individual athlete or team. Uh, and once you get to, uh, you know, the NCAA basketball tournament, you're look, you're rooting for all the Big East teams uh, to succeed. And, um, and that was a lot of fun. As, as you get to know the people who work at each of the institutions you, you, and, and get to know the student athletes, you really get an affinity for, for them as people and you want to see them succeed. And that's, that became much more of, um, what I what I focused on as a professional versus um, you know a, a kid growing up being a fan of of UConn basketball just because I happened to grow up in in the Central Connecticut area. Yeah, that's one thing that I've found a lot. You know, when people do start to work in sports, the the fandom 
is still there. It's just kind of transferred, as you said, to the athletes or the people within those organizations rather than, you know, being a fanatic of UConn basketball. I'm sure you loved working with some of the guys there. I'm sure you enjoyed working with some of the athletes there and you could, you could still have that connection. But as you said, the kind of the fandom dwindles a little bit. And I guess, I don't know if rightfully so is the best way to say it, but it makes sense. As you said, like in the office, it's one thing. I'm sure you all had your, your schools, you you had affinity for, but outside of the office, when you had the badge on for media or whatever it is, or, or, you know, operations, not a good look if uh, you're clapping in the press box, like, right. That's kind of what I've always heard. So yeah. And even when you were lucky enough to score good, good seats in the crowd, you're kind of looking over your shoulder going, yep. you know, is anybody I know looking at me, they're going to, are they going to see me? Um, yep. So yeah, it's uh, it was a delicate balance to walk, but, uh, but it was fun. Yeah, I'm sure it was a blast. And as you said, you started as an intern and worked there for over eight years. So you obviously did develop a pretty significant role. And this was back, if I'm not mistaken, the early 2000s into like the the teens ish time frame. What like and and so ex- explain a little bit about how you kind of, for lack of a better term, fell into this digital role, which now has then essentially become your entire career uh, since since you were that intern at, at the Big East. Yeah. Uh, so this is 2005. Um, coming straight out of grad school uh, in, you know, for people who are old enough to remember, this is before the iPhone was invented and just Mm -hmm. as something like Facebook was taking off. Uh, So uh, that juxtaposed that time in, in the technology world with the Big East Conference, which had just then expanded to 16 teams and included the likes of Louisville and DePaul and Marquette and and some of the others, uh, and, and as the the organization grew as a result, um, you know the the website at the time was digital, and that that kind of fell through the cracks in terms of an area of focus, and and the Big East identified it as an area of focus as something that they understood to be sort of the front door to the organization, um, and so my aptitude as a uh, communications assistant as an intern sort of uh, naturally uh, gravitated toward that area. Um, and with that opening, um, I was able to sort of stay on full-time and, and position, for, you know, transition from a, an intern uh, into a full-time employee overseeing uh, the website from both a content and a strategy perspective. And that's, I mean, how sweet of a time, you know, as you said, this was, so you started at the Big East before the first iPhone was even invented. And by the time you leave, they were essentially already in everyone's pocket, right? Like, it's just crazy to think of how quick that snap of the fingers was. I remember the first time I saw one. I remember the first time I held one. Uh, it was at a Sweet 16 party, right? And someone had it and they're like, yeah, they just got it today. And it was so cool. Couldn't do anything on it, but it was still really cool. And now, you know, again, you know, only a few years later, everybody had one in their pocket. So what was it like kind of being brought on? You were the intern. It's like, okay, hey, we need someone to do this. So, you know, you're you're young. You know how to speak. You're communications major. Here you go. Figure this out to the point where it then becomes one of the most important pieces of the business. I mean, what was that like over that short period of time that you were there to kind of see, learn, and understand what the heck was going on in the world of the internet? Yeah, look, n- nobody knew. D- nobody didn't know what they didn't know, mm-hmm. including myself, right? Uh, you know, coming into this, we knew that the website was a, a, an avenue to communicate your message to an audience. Uh, but how that channel uh, presented itself in the context of what ultimately became a digital ecosystem mm-hmm. uh, was 
something everyone in college sports, in sports, in technology, in in media, um, were were trying to figure out. And so for me, it was uh, baptism by fire, uh, where you know they said, you know, hey, Faircloud, make sure that uh, there's no typos, but at the same time. Uh, and, and also, you know, write content for the site. But at the same time, we knew that, uh, you know, streaming video was something that was taking off and they wanted to be able to present uh, Big East championships to to at least, a, a, you know, relatively small audience of parents and, and relatives and, and others who had an interest in the Big East swimming championship or the Big East golf championship or the Big East field hockey championship that wasn't otherwise broadcasted. And so they, you know, working with technology partners to identify what equipment needed to be purchased to, uh, you know, tie in and, and, and figure out, you know, w- what a digital encoder is and, and these kinds of things. Like all of this sort of fell on me and it was just, a, it was just nothing more than learning. Um, and then, you know, ultimately over time, uh, between the time I started in 2006 as a full-timer until 2013, when I left, the, the role evolved into, sort of head of digital um, with several people on the team producing content. Uh, And we went from, you know, me traveling to the Big East Swimming Championship with one camera, you know, going like this back Mm -hmm. and forth as they swam from point A to point B to, you know, multiple championships, including the Big East Baseball Championship that was, you know, produced with four cameras and broadcasters and uh, in the whole nine yards, then, you know, being broadcast straight to ESPN three at the time, which is their digital only channel. So, um, we got quite sophisticated over time and we learned as we went. Um, but ultimately, you know, it was, it was an awesome opportunity to, uh, learn on the fly, learn from best practices, get to know a lot of people and, and and work with technology partners that could sort of bring, uh, content to life in a matter that you know none of us could ever pictured when we started back you know before the iPhone was invented. Yeah, right. It's it's just crazy to me to think of how you know you called it baptism by fire, also drinking from a fire hose as well. I think could work there too. And like yeah. what as you said before, we didn't know what we didn't know yet, and so we really couldn't expect anything. So how do you develop a strategy? for a gigantic conference like the Big East, well-known. I mean, it just, as you said, back in the heyday with Patrick Ewing and all those other guys and and just kind of, you know, the six fouls in the Big East and, you know, everywhere else only had five, which was always very confusing to me, but it is what it is. And like, so how, <laughs> how did you develop content? Like, how did you have a strategy for something when it seems like, especially back then, things were changing even faster than they are now. Now, at least we have a little bit of time. It's like, okay, you have to update your social profiles. You have to update your videos. You have to do some, some blogs back then. You didn't even know what the heck you were supposed to do. So how do you even develop a strategy for an entire conference that encompasses 16 different, different schools? Yeah. And and one of the biggest challenges we faced with developing any strategy was the nature in which the conference was comprised or the members that comprised the conference. Um, you know, a lot of the other bigger conferences were sort of homogenous in terms of the institutions that made it up. We were a group of, you know, 16 basketballs, you know, schools that played basketball and eight that played football and, mm-hmm. and sort of the, the, the size and breadth of the budgets and the scope and the, and the resources available from one school to the next was, was quite wide. Um, so we had, we were challenged with sort of creating a strategy that tried to create, uh, tried to maximize the distribution of content and the monetization of that distribution to, uh, to an audience of people that were 
you know, uh, of a fan base that was sometimes exponentially smaller and one relative relative to one institution to, you know, a massively large institution, some of the largest, some of the largest and biggest schools in the country. So, uh, you know, in terms of how we develop that strategy, there's a lot of, you know, when you work in a league office, you think of yourself as, uh, uh, well, we, we really are positioned as a service organization. You're there to service the memberships. Mm-hmm. And as soon as you work with a lot of your counterparts at the schools to help understand that you're trying to drive a mission that's in their best interests, and you work with those people to create consensus and just in, 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 in with some of the ideas that you're trying to present them, um, you, you're, you're ultimately able to, to have some success. And then, um, a lot of developing that strategy was a lot of listening uh, and hearing what those institutions were looking to get out of out of their digital channels and, and what their goals were, and and ultimately, um, you know, helping to bring uh, a cohesive uh, approach to that strategy was was what was what made the most sense. Get, let me give an example. So we ended up, uh, you know, trying to identify the easiest method where we could share content amongst the institutions, and they all wanted to be able to leverage a lot of the you know b-roll footage or other types of content that some institutions were producing and others weren't and as soon as we identified that some institutions were producing it and that the others were left out the others were started producing that content we ended up creating a leak digital repository that ultimately they could all share in and produce content in a much more efficient way that than they, they wouldn't they would have otherwise today that's known at very very you know that's a digital asset management system that that comes you know right off the shelf and people are very familiar with it and it, and it wasn't uh it wasn't as revolutionary as it is now, but uh, that was that was a, a sticking point as we started to create what ultimately became the Big East Digital Network and tried to leverage that brand across the institutions. As we presented that uh, as an opportunity, um, a lot of the institutions finally started to get to to get buy-in. Um, so, yeah, that is very impressive. That is very impressive. And like, guess remember you were the intern that they said, "Hey, we need someone to work on the website." Right? It's just crazy that in such a short period of time, you were able not to just you know, to learn about something that was not unlearnable, obviously, but you kind of had to come up with this stuff as it you just went along. I mean, how much stuff did you throw out the wall that didn't stick, I guess? Yeah, I, I mean, it's a long time ago. I'm sure a lot of it didn't stick. Yeah. Uh, it, you know, look, one of the things that I was fortunate to be, to be able to do is I had a, a lot of great mentors and, a, and, a, and also um, had all kinds of resources to be able to to do professional development. Mm-hmm. So we went to a ton of conferences. The sports video group is a big, uh, a, a big conference where you start to learn about best practices and digital content production and, and distribution. Um, COSIDA is a, you know, college sports information directors of America is a great membership organization that ultimately evolved and, and rolled itself into uh, NACTA, which is sort of the, the athletics uh, directors association. Mm-hmm. Um, so by going to all these conferences and working and seeing what worked with other other conferences and other institutions and other technology partners, you learned a ton and you just sort of, you know, took it all in and tried mm-hmm. to leverage what made the most sense for the organization. Yeah. And clearly you did you did a darn good job at that. And so you left in 2013, correct? Yes. That's when everything started to hit the fan, right? Right around there or a little bit before it? When the yeah. Started to uh, kind of. I don't want to say break down and falter, but that Big East, as I said, does not exist anymore, unfortunately. Um, now it's kind of half of it, and now it's just basketball schools. How much, How much? like, with all of that going on, and then I think TCU and um, Boise State somehow made their way into the Big East, and, and as just a national fan of college sports, I was like, well, that just doesn't make any sense. And then it got all weird and wonky. So how much 
of that were you there for and how much did I guess you have to deal with that? Yeah, it's interesting. I, I happen to know the date quite well because uh, I, I left and my first day at my next position was uh, it was like June 1st of 2013. So I took a little bit of pride, I guess you could say that um, J- July 1st of that year was when uh, the official start date was from when the Big East Conference Office officially moved to become the American Athletic Conference mm-hmm. Office. Uh, so I left in May of 2013. Um, yeah, and, and uh it was right, you know, when Rutgers went to the Big Ten, and then mm-hmm. Pittsburgh and Syracuse went to the ACC. Um, you know, things things were unfortunately quite challenging. Uh, it, it it just it, I don't want to say that I left because of that. It's certainly not the case. It mm-hmm. was uh, it was happenstance. I think you know I had been there for eight years, and I was looking for a number of different reasons to to take on additional challenges and sort of broaden my horizon. Um, but that being in place certainly. Um, you know, was you know sort of the icing on the cake, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Man, that must have been crazy. <clears throat> just like absolutely, just crazy for all that stuff to happen, and kind of especially in your role as the the head of digital, you can because none of it was really. I mean, it was all finalized behind the scenes, but like forward facing. You know, TCU and B, Boise State weren't in the Big East yet, right? So, like, how yeah. did you how did you kind of? walk those waters of, no, it's cool. We're all still fine. And everyone kind of publicly is like, no, you're not. You're a liar. (laughs) It's yeah. When you're in the thick of it, you just sort of have to keep your head down Mm -hmm. and focus on what you can control. Um, And, you know, much of my day to day for the better part of that year was essentially saying, you know, how do we execute on our, on our content plan? Mm -hmm. Uh, What, what can we do to just sort of, keep the lights on, so to speak, with, with our, our sort of normal routine. Um, and, and then, you know, all the other sort of macro, f- macro things that were mm-hmm. going on around us, you just sort of had to let them be, um, yeah. you know, cause you were, you were servicing institutions that you knew were leaving. Mm-hmm. You had others that were looking to get in and they were excited to get in. And it was just, it was, there's no other way to describe it as awkward um, and challenging and frustrating because, you know, speaking of, getting into strategy. Like you can't create a strategy for something you have no idea. Mm. You, you know, you're looking forward. You're like, I don't even know who the, mem- I had a whiteboard in my office where I had to literally say, okay, in this year, this is our makeup in uh-huh. this year. This is, these are the schools we're going to have. And then in this year, we're going to have these schools. And it was, you couldn't, you couldn't even keep it straight in your head. I literally needed to write it down and refer mm-hmm. to it. Um, and, and so when you have those kinds of variables at play, you, you just, again, you try, you try and be as, um, try and, you know, be a good soldier, so to speak, and, and do your job as best you can. And, and again, let the macroeconomic factors sort of let, you know, let them fall as they may. Let them fall as they may. As you said, you got out just before the name change from the Big East to the AAC. Um, I, I'm, I'm assuming you're kind of happy to have UConn back in the Big East. Again, it's kind of the second iteration of the Big East, but they are back now moving forward, which is going to be kind of nice. They always kind of felt weird in the AAC anyway. So I'm grateful too, that they are yeah. back there. So uh, as you said, you left um, and you actually left for startup life, a company called Prepay, which was then eventually acquired by Crossfield. What was, I mean, you went from one like the biggest of the big institutions, right? A gigantic college conference, not even a school. You went to the conference and now you're going as small almost as you possibly could. I'm sure it wasn't the smallest startup in the world, but what was that like? And I guess what made you want to go from just like 
structure and, and gigantic institution that's been around since, you know, whatever, whatever to, you know, let's see what the startup life has to offer. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, it was called pre-play and, and to give some background. Yeah. Uh, you know, no worries. Uh, so it, it was, uh, it's essentially a mobile gaming startup that worked with sports organizations uh, to, to allow fans to make live predictions of sporting events. So every down of a oh, football wow. game or, or every, uh, every at bat of a baseball game. Um, so it was a series B funded startup based in midtown Manhattan. Uh, the geography was of specific interest to me for my family. Um, you know, my wife is from a suburb of, of the New York city area. Um, and so it was important to us to ultimately get to this area. That was the starting point for my search. And then otherwise I just thought the company was, was interesting. Uh, I thought, you know, I was, I was, uh, enamored by, by the founder and CEO, who's a really young, sharp guy, uh, named Andrew Danes. Uh, and, and I, and I just said, screw it, you know, let's take a shot. Uh, and and even then, you know, looking back at it, I I, I didn't know what I didn't know, uh, uh, and learned learned a ton. Uh, and you know, and so just to be clear, the, the role was more business development focused. My job was to uh, identify strategic partnerships for the for the for the technology as a as a revenue generating um, role. So uh, we worked with Bleacher Report, the United States Tennis Association. Uh, uh, Major League Baseball was a strategic investor in the business. Um, we worked at the NHL. We worked with you know some top brands to bring the game to light. So um, it was exciting to to live that life. And again, like sort of, I sort of liken it to the difference between Division One and Division Three sports. In that, when you're in Division Three sports, uh, a lot of people in athletic departments wear multiple hats. When you're a director of business development at a startup. You're also sort of the marketing director, and you're also, uh, you know, sometimes the the guy who has to go run down the street to get a printer. Uh, you know, you're you're also, uh, you know, the head of operations when necessary. So, like, it, it, it was uh, fun in that way, and that you it was nothing. It's it's a a total grind, but um, but at the same time, it was it was a totally different experience, as you mentioned, from the Big East, and it was a good chance to sort of get on the the private side, so to speak, mm -hmm. or beyond, beyond the, the technology vendor side. Uh, and, and I learned a ton in it. And it, it, I mean, the way you describe the business, that sounds like it was a few years ahead of his time. Now with all, you know, like now that betting's legal and now, you know, you have all these games that are essentially daily fantasy in some capacity. I mean, looking back on it, like how, how cool, again, you were talking about iPhones before, like how nice would it have been if this just showed up four or five years later down the road where it's in now an industry that's completely booming? Yeah, uh, I think it's fair to say that we were too early, right? Uh, it, it, and the angle we took was much more video game focused. It was mostly, it was intended to be a social gaming mm -hmm. uh, platform that really drove uh, engagement for fans it, it, and it was sort of a, an MMOG sort of concept, mm -hmm. um, but, but in the context of sports. So uh, yeah, I, I mean, considering the, the landscape as it looks today, there's a lot of different ways mm -hmm. we could have taken it. Um, but to, to get back to what you were getting at before, I think, so I started in 2013, I think it was by 2015, we were acquired by FanVision Entertainment, which is uh, um, a, a video technology provider uh, owned by by the owner of the Dolphins, Stephen Ross. Um, the CEO that I just mentioned, Andrew, became the CEO of FanVision, um, and we essentially became the software 
the software arm of that hardware focused business. Uh, and as a subsidiary of that company, um, I became president of a very, very small technology company called Crossfield Digital. We leveraged mm -hmm. the technology we had with Preplay and, and our relationships in the sports space uh, to create technology solutions for for you know sports and entertainment companies in the um, uh, you know in the sports space. So mm -hmm. uh, you know we we continued to do work with Bleacher Report and the U.S. Tennis Association, and we also got to work with. Uh, a couple of startups, including a Spanish ticketing startup, uh, a video membership startup called Radiate, which was founded by Betty Lou, who's a famous financial reporter for Bloomberg, um, and some others. And so, uh, again, using the Division Three analogy, as president of that, it was this was like you know eight to ten different people who uh, worked within that organization. Uh, we um, you, know, you had to do everything. Um, and it was, an ex, it was probably the most exciting time I had in my career, but also the most challenging. Um, it was a you know, head of operations, head of revenue, uh, a lot of different hats that you had to wear. And, but, um, it ultimately led me to where I am now, which is essentially the, the, for lack of a better term, the more sophisticated grown-up version of the company that I was starting with Crossfield, which is, uh, formerly Omnigon Communications, now IXECO. Yes, yes, absolutely. And I think again, you know, just kind of that to live that startup life a little bit, I'm sure was nice for multiple different facets, kind of the speed of it, you know, not as much bureaucracy, not having to please all these different universities to make sure everybody was happy out all the time. Now it's just, you know, not not quite shooting from the hip, not quite running and gunning, but definitely the speed of it, I'm sure increased a little bit. And as you said, you know, it was probably nice you know you were called the president but you pretty much did everything at that point whatever needed to be done got done and i think it's yeah. it's always nice to kind of i mean how much did that kind of just shake you a little bit like just kind of like all right like we're not we're not at the big east anymore you know no not in kansas <laughs> anymore right you're you're really just like you got to go just figure it out and, and run with it not that you weren't doing that at the big east of course but now it's just i guess in a uh in a quicker capacity with uh, a little bit more I guess riding on the other people in the the organization. Yeah, look, you're you know, we we can call a spade a spade. You know, a job in the conference office is quite cushy. Um, it, it's thank you for saying that. I didn't I didn't want to say it, so I'm glad you did. But, yeah, don't look. It, but don't get me wrong. People, there's it's it, it has its set of demands. It's challenging. You work hard. Uh, but it comes with its benefits, right? Mm -hmm. Like you get you get a front row seat to college sports, and you get some really cool perks, and you know you work closely with student athletes and the whole nine yards. Um, but when you're a Series B startup and you've got a cash burn that's being monitored every day, and you're being expected to to raise the top line of the company and position it for an acquisition within three to five years, yeah, you're going to run and you're going to fail, and you're going to fail fast, and you're going to run hard. And, and if you're not doing that, get the hell out of the way. Um, and that was a far different atmosphere and a far different environment that took some getting used to. Um, but, you know, I was able to, you know, they threw me into this, into the ocean, so to speak, I was able to swim a little bit and, and, um, you know, hung through the, the acquisition and, and had some success along the way. I love it, man. And congratulations to it. I mean, you were there for between the two companies, you were there for about four years, correct? That's right. So it's a nice period of time, you know, get, get running then okay hey let's 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 slow it maybe not even slow it back down but let's uh, move along i guess uh, for lack of a better term so there was before you did get to to omnigam which is as we said before ix.co you actually 
kind of, I guess, for lack of a better term, took a pit stop at MSG for a little bit. Um, I think only about four, four or five months, not even half a year, but you were working with the Knicks, if I'm not mistaken, at MSG and kind of developing their digital strategy. I think, you know, you kind of told me all this before the call. It makes me sound a little bit better. So I appreciate you there. But tell me a little bit about your time at MSG because when we had our initial call, you didn't bring it up. So I, I wasn't sure if that meant, you know, it wasn't that big a deal, but um, I'm sure there's some cool stuff that happened. I mean, it's one of the most world's most famous arena, Ben. Come on, you got to have something to do there, right? Yeah, in the context of a 15-year career, two months isn't that much, yeah. uh, but it's certainly an important stop for sure. Um, learned a ton. So the, the background is, you know, uh, I was actually applying for a job uh, within the MSG organization uh, uh, and ultimately, unfortunately, didn't get it, but uh, was offered a sort of a freelance consultant position uh, to work uh, in digital within the context of the next marketing organization. Uh, so they had a handful of people that had left unexpectedly uh, and some gaps to fill as the season started in October. I guess at the time it was 2017-ish, 2018. Um, and uh, yeah, so I, you know, in, in that role, it was uh, sort of a, a digital strategy role, um, but it was nothing, it was, you know, do everything kind of thing. Uh, so it went from writing copy uh, for social content uh, to uh, helping to produce uh, a video package for Chase uh, as a part of uh, some branded content that Chase was was presented uh, with to help. Uh, really, the focus ultimately was to develop the, the cross-channel strategy for the Knicks. Um, the idea being that you know, they, you're producing content for Facebook, for Twitter, for Snapchat, for your owned and operated properties, uh, you know, on, on web and mobile. Um, how did you present that content uh, differently for each of those uh, platforms? Because mm -hmm. uh, there's different ways to optimize it for, um, you know, for engagement, which ultimately drove, you know, the revenue, uh, the revenue for, the, for, for digital. So, um, we really had to you know, do quite a bit of research around, you know, optimal content production. This went from like, you know, do you want a square uh, frame for your content to, uh, you know, it, it, you would you would actually see that uh, content within uh, Twitter feeds would produce would be um, engaged better if it was in a longer format. So it would occupy more of the the scroll when mm -hmm. you uh, when you were scrolling through on Twitter. Um, to what was the optimal time of day to be tweeting messages for ticket sales, uh, and what were you what were you doing on Instagram? Uh, in you know, if you had a video that you were producing for Facebook, how would you manipulate that same video and cut it down for Instagram and present it differently for that channel, where a lot of the users are focused on really beautiful content that really popped uh, for Instagram or for Instagram stories. Um, you know, versus, you know, Facebook, which is maybe more of a long form channel that has an audience that's, that skews older. Um, so the, the, you know, all of those different things were being, um, you know, essentially serving as inputs and then ultimately you had to sort of figure out how you could, um, distribute those across the channels in a way that made sense and had a plan to it and was intentional. But at the same time, there's a lot of things in the world that you couldn't control, like, you know, you didn't know if Kristaps Porzingis was going to break his leg. And if he did, then that would blow your plans up to smithereens. <laughs> so like, you know, all these different things come together and, and within the context of a very highly matrixed organization like MSG, um, you had to figure out uh, 
really quickly how you could how you could execute that plan in a way that made sense and ultimately levered up to the KPIs that we're all working towards, which is really focused on ticket sales and um, you know and engagement on digital. Man. Yeah, I think that was a pretty important two months. Uh, you definitely it sounds like you did some stuff while you were there. I you mean, know, it, you know, in in two months, just to be clear, there's only so much you can accomplish. But if mm-hmm. you know, I, I think uh, you know, it was we, we set ourselves up for success. I think the team that was there full time, you know, took a lot of the inputs and ran with it, and ultimately created something which was good. Um, but I, I like to think that I sort of helped kind of nudge them on, onto that track. Absolutely. I think you did. And it's always interesting, especially with a team like the Knicks, as bad as they've been my entire life, it feels like. I'm pretty sure they've made the playoffs you know, since 1991. I don't even know, not that many times. I mean, we all just watched the last dance, so we saw they made it a couple times in the, in the mid to late 90s. But since the 2000s, they've been pretty bad. Like how, how, like I understand like your, your, one of your main KPIs was selling tickets, but it seems like the buildings always sold out. So, so at what point, like, does what you do even matter? I guess at that point, because I mean, they could be terrible. What last year when they had like the third overall pick, one of the worst teams in the league, I still feel like they sold out every single game. So like what exactly at that point are you doing? Yeah. I I mean, look relative to maybe other NBA organizations, they're a lot more full than, you know, than most, you know, 15 to 20 win teams would be. Uh, they're not completely full though. And in an organization like MSG where like every single seat counts, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the ticket messaging was, was, was really important. Um, so, you know, there's a couple thousand seats, you know, to, to ultimately more depending on the game that ultimately needed to get sold. Um, and yeah, I, I mean, we all, you know, we, we had to, one of the biggest challenges we were faced with was, how we straddle the line with the 80-20 rule, um, which is, you know, 80 percent of your content should be organic uh, and should ultimately fill the top of the funnel. But 20, and then once you've got them in, you know, hit them with 20% of the content should be focused on, on ticket sales or revenue generating proactive messaging. Um, so we, we struggled a lot and we, we tried to, you know, identify other organizations and other NBA teams and other sports organizations that were, doing it well um yeah at the end of the day you're trying to sell you know a, a you know a product that maybe you know all knicks fans would say is less than standard um so you know you, you know i don't know that we had we had the right answer but um but it was an interesting experience to say the least yes to say the least working for the knicks uh, i'm sure it was very interesting and then from there as we said you did move on to omnigon um now i.x ix.co sorry i letters and we, we 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 call it ix for short for exactly what you for yep. for exactly that reason just because yeah. it rolls rolls off the tongue a little bit easier yeah ix i love it that sounds a little bit more robust so what um you you brought it up before you're working with places like chelsea football club you're working with some of these gigantic gigantic brands in the sports world but you even said it to me you're kind of you're the guy behind the guy a little bit you know like not too many people actually know who you are unless you're in the know it sounds like or at least just have a little bit more information and understanding. So what exactly do you guys do over there and how are you capable of working with all these just humongous brands in the sports world? Yeah. So for people who aren't familiar, uh, you know, the easiest way to describe what we do at, you know, Omnigon or now IX is uh, serve as the technology partner for them. So uh, if you've been to PGA tour.com or Chelsea, you know, Chelsea FC.com or the U or us open.com, uh, that the the entity that built those 
content experiences uh, was was us. So we are uh, we have 300 plus employees across many different offices around the world, uh, and our our partnerships uh, uh, in the NFL and, and others are included in that. Uh, are are focused on building those content experiences for those sports sports properties. Um, we we are, are differentiating um, proposition for our clients is that you know we've 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 gotten really good at building these content experiences at scale, uh, and uh, and we can ultimately you know deliver uh, against events and timelines that don't move. So when you're looking to Create a really awesome tech, uh, you know, content experience for fans uh, at the Super Bowl. Uh, you better make sure that you can deliver that technology on time because the Super Bowl isn't moving. Um, and so we, we've done that quite well. We actually did that with Verizon as a part of a 5G initiative um, recently, um, and and we've done it with you know Chelsea Football Club and USOpen.com and many others. Um, but my role as an account manager is essentially to oversee the commercial function. Uh, for our existing clients, um, and it's and it's uh, you know, as we talked about, uh, it most people don't know the entity that builds those things. We're essentially sort of a, a behind the scenes organization, and, and um, most people understand that uh, we work very closely with the people who work at those organizations. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we work with chief technology officers, we work with chief digital officers or head of digital. So um, when I was at the Big East many mm-hmm. years ago. Uh, I was working with, you know, technology partners like Omnigon or IX. Um, at the time, it was CSTV or or Exos Digital, who had uh, or Sidearm Sports, which, which is still uh, in its current form, a large player in the college space. Uh, so my role as the client was to help facilitate that uh, that relationship and help them to to hit our hit on our goals. And now I'm sitting mm-hmm. on the other side of the table. Um, you know, working with people who work in the, in that similar capacity, but on the on the team or the or the partner side. Mm-hmm. And so that that does make sense, and it's probably very nice, as you said, sitting on the other side of the table. So you knew what it was like back when when it was actually difficult to do a lot of these things. I'm sure it's not the easiest thing in the world now, but again, we've advanced so much, and there's so much new. And and you brought up the term content experience a lot. What exactly do you mean? And if you don't mind giving a couple examples, what exactly is content experience? Yeah, so so our our cl- clients work with us because we're able to uh, generate an ROI based on content. So their goal is to you know if you think of this as a car, w- what we build is sort of the chassis for the car. We're the we're building the the framework for that content to be presented to a user in a manner that's optimized and and can and can facilitate the highest amount of engagement. And when you're thinking at, at the scale of some of these sports organizations, if you can do that in a way that increases your engagement by a number of percentage points, that translates to a significant revenue increase across the organization. So uh, to give you an, you know, an example, if you know, we, we, we came in and, and took over usopen.com a couple of years ago, um, we were charged with making sure that they could uh, you know, optimize that experience for you know, video is a big part of that. So you know, if they could uh, increase the average session time uh, by a matter of 30 seconds, that could then, uh, you know, translate into an increase in revenue. Um, and, and so we've done that successfully for all the organizations I've already mentioned. 
Uh, and uh, when we talk to our clients and prospective clients, you know, the the, the idea of um, you know us optimizing and providing that uh, experience for content mm-hmm. it ultimately translates well, and and that's where we where we succeed. It is very interesting, and I guess with the whole world, it's always really interesting, you know, back when cell phones started, right, they were, you know, we had the iPhone, and then we had some of these other crazy phones, and everything was totally different. And they had all these things and then eventually, as we were talking about the funnel before they all kind of go down the funnel. And now really, what's the difference between the iPhone 15 and the, and the Samsung Galaxy 900? They're practically the same phone just made by a different company, at least in my opinion, I'm sure there's certain things. Like with all these different clients, and obviously with video being very important, just in the world of the internet, as we've known, I think there's going to be you know, video engagement, especially with 5G coming up, the it's going to be so much easier to download and watch and see how, how I'm, I'm sure this is a subjective answer, but how different are all the strategies when it comes to these clients, especially big properties uh, versus teams or leagues versus teams and what they need to do without div- d- divulging too much information. How different do some of these strategies become and how important is your role then to understand how to execute upon them and really kind of consult that team or that league into understanding what they need to do? Um, yeah, that, that's an interesting question. Um, is it too interesting? Cause I can ask a different it, question if you want. May, maybe say it differently because, you know, uh, maybe I'll say this, each organization certainly takes, you know, has a different set of KPIs and a different mm-hmm. set of remits. And a lot of what we do as a professional services organization is try and identify what their KPIs are. Uh, I, and then from there, and we, and, and then identify what problems they're faced with. And then I, and then do a gap analysis and say, you need to get your average session mm-hmm. time to four minutes per session. Right now it's at three minutes per session. How do we bridge the gap for that extra minute? Okay. Um, so, so with, and that might be, that might be totally different across all of our different clients. Some other clients may be focused on ticket sales, ticket sales, ticket sales. And so mm-hmm. we'll, we'll say, you know, if you need your ticket sales to go from, you know, X percentage to Y percentage in a year over year basis, because that's what, you know, that's, what's going to keep you in your job. Then we create the best possible ticket selling experience that we could, we could possibly build. Um, so, so, so in t- just in terms of like who we are and how we address those, those kinds of questions mm-hmm. with our clients, it's, just, it's a, you know, very much a consulting <clears throat> type exercise and we're yeah. a professional services organization. That's how we do it. I love it. Awesome. Very, very great way of answering that kind of long winded question. So I do appreciate you there, Ben. That was good stuff. So yeah, sure. with, um, with that now kind of where we sit in the world of marketing, you've been here since 2015 ish. It's now 2020. We've seen 15 years of growth. We've seen 15 years of just things happening. You, as you're saying at the big East, you were, you know, you were the guy at the swim meet with the, uh, the camera watching everybody. And now you can see all the things that we can stream on the internet. It's, you know, with Twitch and all these other crazy things that are going on. How has digital marketing changed and how much are you still just drinking by that fire hose on a daily basis, even 15 years into your career? Uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's also a loaded question, but sorry, no, no, it's good. (laughs) We're in, in my current role, like we're constantly looking to push the envelope with whatever's coming next. Right. So a lot of our clients are trying to identify ways to capitalize on augmented reality uh, or capitalize on, you know, the concept of voice as a platform right now that and I, I can't even say them out loud because all my devices will go off. But, yeah, right. you know, the, the Amazons and the Apple versions and the Google versions of, of voice. So, um, you know, a lot of a lot of 
it's not even digital marketing. It's just technology continues to move so fast. And now that we're in this pandemic, I've you know been doing a lot of reading and thinking and, and a lot of what we're talking about with our clients is about how uh, this isn't so much a change agent as an accelerant to mm-hmm. trends that were already in place. Uh, and so, uh, you know, thinking about things like working from home or thinking about, you know, the onset of, uh, you know, artificial intelligence, uh, you know, it, you know, voices continuing, you know, we're, we, you look around my house, I have like six uh, Amazon Echoes, you know, uh, what is what is consume what are what's going to change with consumer behavior in light of the current in, uh, of the current world or or what are the things that we're already seeing but it's going to happen faster and so uh it, it's i don't think anyone has the right answer but those are the questions we're we're sort of thinking about mm-hmm. uh and yeah I, I mean to your point like to think about what's transpired over the last 15 years of my career and then to look ahead into the next 15 years it's it's going to be. I would venture to say it's it's going to be far more dramatic than what than what I've already experienced. It's going to be pretty cool, though. I'm excited to see, especially some of the AR VR stuff that's coming along. That's now just being easily obtainable. You know, as you said, voice is being. Uh, it's a lot of people, and especially with hands free driving and all that, you kind of have to ask your phone to do all the things that it does now. So it's always very interesting to me, and I appreciate yeah. you. Uh, answering those questions professionally because I didn't quite ask them that great. So I appreciate you uh, <laughs> understanding where I'm coming from with that. So it's uh, it's pretty interesting. Okay. So one, th- one thing, um, you know, just a couple last topics. You are an adjunct professor, as I said before, at Montclair State University. That's where my fiance graduated from. So I appreciate you there. Professor in the School of Communications and Media. So first off, thank you. Appreciate what you do, shaping our youth. What was it? Why did you want to become an adjunct professor. It sounds like you got a lot of stuff you're doing, um, you know, just kind of throw on, Hey, let me be a teacher on top of it. Yeah. So this one kind of, you know, sometimes better be lucky than good, but, uh, I I've always, I've had sort of a coaching knack and I, and a sort of a teaching knack since I was younger, uh, even dating back to when I was in high school. And I, I didn't even tell you this, like, you know, I, I, I was coaching, uh, little, <clears throat> little kids baseball, excuse me. <laughs> excuse me. Uh, and, and I've just loved doing it uh, for my whole life. And uh, for, you know, it just hasn't presented itself until now. But it, uh, once once it did, I was able to, to find out through my wife who works at the university that they're looking to get the Red Hawk Sports Network off the ground in, in sort of a traditional digital network sense. Uh, and, and Amy came home one day and she's like, I heard this thing about this Red Hawk sports network. And I was like, yeah, that's kind of what I did for eight years at the big East. Uh, and, and that's kind of what I was thinking about with, with the Knicks and I, and I, and I, and I, I live in this space. This is, this is a no brainer. So, um, you know, long story short, got introduced to the head of school and communication and media. His name is Keith Strudler. We got talking and, um, you know, you know, the goal is to identify sort of a, a partnership between the School of Communication Media and the athletic department to produce games that could ultimately live on, on YouTube um, in a manner that was actually using some interesting technology, some AI-based production technology where the, the, uh, it would identify the action. The cameras wouldn't need to be manned or womaned. They would actually just be independent and they would automatically track the action based on certain variables and in, in the way uh, in the way the game was being played. So they wanted to leverage those cameras to produce this content and and then use the student give, use the students in the school in case of communication and media to broadcast the games. So my my role as the adjunct was to oversee that internship experience for them and then 
at the same time serve as a in, in sort of a consulting capacity to to identify the strategy to to get this to market. Again, you used to hold a camera and watch swimmers go back and forth, and now we have computers doing all this for you. So if that's, that's right. not full circle, man, I mean, that is that's such it. a perfect, perfect way to come full circle. And I think it's really cool that, you know, you're, you're helping students, you're, you're doing a lot of things on that end, obviously, as an adjunct professor, but also through this consulting role with the Red Hawk Sports Network. I mean, you did this. You started doing this so long ago, and now you can, again, it's all coming full circle, just like way more technology is now involved, hopefully making your life a heck of a lot easier and making the student's life a heck of a lot easier. What is it about this opportunity? I mean, I know you said you already did it, but again, it's just, it's adding more to your plate that already sounds pretty full. And it's not just like you're just doing the consulting. You, you are a professor as well. You didn't really touch upon that. I mean, how, how is it, this is just built out of passion. It's, it sounds like and really just helping this school kind of get to get up to date. It sounds like. Yes. It's interesting. Cause we talked before about, I, you know, how much I didn't know when I was starting this at the big East. Uh, but now, you know, we're sort of, this is an opportunity, uh, opportunity for me to, to be the subject matter matter expert in the room, uh, which is a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, I can leverage the experience that I've had to actually sort of wipe the slate clean and, uh, do it in a manner that that leverages my experience instead of just sort of figuring it out on the fly. Um, so yeah, it's a lot of fun. And and they're, to be clear, I mean, they're doing a lot of things that I've already done, but also doing it in a manner that's really mm. kind of bleeding edge using some interesting technology that I'm not that familiar with. Uh, so it's interesting in that regard. And then, you know, otherwise... Uh, you know, I get to interact with students and, and, uh, and, you know, who are hungry and raw and looking to do all, you know, looking to make a difference. Uh, and and that's just, that's, that's just a lot of fun. Uh, and it's refreshing, you know, when you go from, you know, sometimes a challenging professional environment where you're dealing with, you know, high profile people in a, in a fast paced world. And then you go to, to work with college students who are, really hungry to get into the world that you've been in for 15 years. It's a, it's a perfect dichotomy and it keeps me honest and it keeps me feeling good about, about what I do. That is awesome. And I think I told you this, but my favorite professors were always the adjunct professors because they were the ones that would come from work. There was a couple of classes where I took them at night because I knew the guy was, the professor was literally coming from work. And instead of opening up the books, it was, this is what I did today. And this is how it applies to intro to supply chain. Thank you, Professor Ricci. I really appreciate that. And it was just so much more interesting to actually hear real life stories, not just the definition of supply chain is whatever that the definition of logistics. Like, no one cared about that, especially in business school. You learn more in business doing business than you do reading out of a book, in my opinion. At least that's what I've found. And so being able to kind of give back too. So you're getting from them that energy, that hungriness. And as you said, it keeps you honest, but you're also being able to teach them and give them back. And, and so I do, you know, we touched upon it a little bit before. I do want to hop back in time a little bit. We'll kind of, you know, Quentin Tarantino this and we'll go all the way back to when you were in college. And, you know, as you said, division three baseball player, you were telling me the story about how uh, all the coaches, if I'm not mistaken, were also athletic directors in some capacity. So, I mean, tell us kind of again, now, you know, being in college now, you know, compare that to 16, 17 years later to what you're seeing. And, you know, that first job you got in sports to seeing how kids are doing it now. And, you know, some of the wisdom that you can impart uh, on some of the listeners out there for us. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So I got my undergraduate degree at Thomas College, which is a very, very small business school in central Maine. Uh, and I played baseball there. Uh, and so you know, the, my story in terms of how I got into the space was, uh, you know, as a not so good baseball player, 
I had a lot of time on the bench. And uh, as a part of my sports media class for sports management, I was required to create a website for the for one of the teams on campus. So of course, I did it for the baseball team. Uh, back in 2002, it was uh, thomas.edu slash athletics slash baseball. Uh, and it was it was created using Microsoft front page as the software. And it actually they liked it so much, it became the website for the Thomas College baseball team, uh, which, uh, you know, looking back on it now is, is terrible but better than what we had i guess uh and do you think result, if i search it it would show up do you think I could, uh, uh, i'll probably, see if yeah it's probably out there somewhere on a server so yeah uh and you might be able to find it um but yeah so so you know I, I i just sort of then became the person who was expected to write stories for it and keep the and keep the scores up to date you know the the coach was also you know coach was responsible for that and did it whenever he had time to do it when he wasn't being a professor or a, or a baseball coach. Um, so, you know, I was then, you know, charged with keeping the stats and I was the guy with the book. And uh, so I, I, I didn't intentionally do this, but it, it ultimately became my, my, my foundation for a career in sports media and public relations. Uh, and I knew at the time uh, I didn't have enough sort of sophisticated or traditional experience in doing that. So I, I, I leveraged what I did do and, and got a graduate assistantship at Slippery Rock University uh, in Western Pennsylvania and, and got my master's degree as a sport management major uh, at, at Slippery Rock and then did it for 23 sports teams with us, you know, that actually had a sports information director and a sophisticated, uh, you know, platform to, 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 to serve in that capacity. Uh, you know, wrote many stories, published many stories to the website, and then leveraged that relationship to take me to the Big East that we've already talked about. So, uh, yeah, now coming full circle and leveraging that experience, uh, it, it especially in light of the challenging uh, employment environment that a lot of student athletes, students uh, and student athletes are faced with right now. Uh, it, I didn't intend to do this, but the message is still the same do work for free. And, and, and when I work with the students that I do work with, like they're, they're all out there saying, how do I get my first full-time job or how do I demonstrate experience in the, with technology right now, there's so much out there that you can do completely on your own that, uh, you know, the, you know, I, I went through and did practical experience as an undergrad. I got a graduate assistantship. Then from the graduate assistantship, I got an internship and then after the internship, I finally landed my first full-time job. That's how hard it was. And it wasn't easy, uh, but it ultimately landed me where I am today. And so, you know, my message to students currently is, you know, the same that I've, you know, I hear a lot from others is like, w right now you're not going to be able to find a job, but you, it doesn't mean you can't develop yourself as somebody who, who can find a job over time, as long as you're taking on, uh, you know, some work and demonstrating that you're looking to get new skills or practical experience by producing your own video content or doing social media for your own channels or, or whatever the case may be. So um, it, it's, um, it's been, it, it's fun to think about 15, 16 years ago and, and how I got started. And it's, it's kind of an interesting story, but um, I didn't know it, but I was, I was doing work for free at the time and it ultimately got me where I am today. And it got you where you are. And I think that's the important part. You know, a lot of people scream against free work, but I'm sorry we're in the sports industry. And the thing is, you know, you're not going to be the, the supply and the demand are both so, so high that if you haven't written blog articles, if you have not been a writer for a couple of years, why would anyone pick you when there are multiple people that have been doing it since they were 16? Uh, I had a gentleman that was on this show, Eric Spiropolis. He works for the Nuggets right now and Cronky Sports and Entertainment would exactly be, um, the, 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 the parent company is, but he 
started his own media company based around basketball. He wrote for Fansided and SB Nation for free for literal years, did hundreds and hundreds of articles. And coming out of college, he didn't get a single job offer. So it just shows, I mean, he is an incredible writer and I've seen some of his stuff. He was great on the show, but it just shows you that there are so many people out there doing so, so much that, yeah, it's kind of sucks. But if you really want to work in the sports industry, you're really not going to make that much right out of the gun anyway. So you're going to have to figure it out. You're going to have to do what you have to do. And, you know, the hard work, the determination, helping others, lifting others up, adding value. Those are things that are going to help you get to where you need to go. But, you know, having to uh, do some free work is just one of the things along the way. So, um, Ben, this was awesome, man. Really appreciate you uh, you coming on. This was fantastic. Yeah, thanks. It was, it was fun to be here. I appreciate you, you having me on. Please. Pleasure is all mine. You did all the cool stuff. I just got to ask you a bunch of questions. Ben Fairclough, account management lead of professional professional services at IX. Um, adjunct professor, Montclair State University. Really appreciate your time, man. Thanks, Michael. Talk soon. Thank you so much for listening to this episode with Ben. As I said, super interesting. We appreciate him being a teacher. Uh, so thank him for that. Make sure to follow him on all of his socials. Everything will be in the show notes. Make sure to also follow me on some of my socials. Some of those will be in the show notes. Please also make sure to give this show a five-star review. It is the most important thing. And the more that happens, the more people get to see this show, the more people get to hear these stories, and the more people get to enjoy it just as you did. So thank you all so much for your time. It's the only thing we don't get more of. And I appreciate you giving me some of yours and I hope you make it a wonderful day.